Facing the Future of International Arbitration, a CMS series exploring the evolving challenges and innovations in international arbitration. Welcome, everyone. Uh, after a break, it's good to be back with our podcast series, Facing the Future of Arbitration. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emergency arbitration. Now, in the usual way, I'm joined by arbitration lawyers from across CMS so that we can share our experiences from different legal perspectives. I'll introduce our speakers in a moment, uh, but first the topic, emergency arbitration. In the world of dispute resolution procedures, this is actually a relatively new creation. It was first introduced in 2006, but it wasn't really until around 2010 to 2014 that most of the main uh, uh, arbitral institutions adopted uh, or changed their rules to allow emergency arbitration. And now most institutions have some form of this process. So what is it? Well, if you're watching this podcast, you probably know about interim injunctions from courts. Uh, and you, you may know that those types of proceedings are also obtained sometimes in support of um, uh, uh, pending arbitrations. Those might be to preserve assets, evidence, preserve the status quo, and maybe even in exceptional cases to make substantive decisions that can't wait till a full trial. So emergency arbitration is similar, but it's not the same. Um, there are important procedural differences, and in many respects, the opportunities for relief in emergency arbitration are far wider. For this podcast, it's my pleasure to introduce two of my partners, Rita Guvia and Mariel Dimsey. Rita is a disputes partner at CMS in Lisbon. Mariel is a disputes partner at CMS in Hong Kong. And we've come together for this podcast because we've all had recent experience in emergency arbitration and experience under different arbitral rules too. So Rita, then Mariel, could you both briefly explain your emergency arbitration experience? Thank you, Guy. It is a pleasure for me being here with you and Mariel. Uh, my experience, and in a very brief way, is with the ICC emergency arbitration rules and acting as defendant's counsel. So handling, uh, dealing with an application requesting for emergency measures. Thanks very much, Rita and Mariel. Thanks also to, to you guys from me, and I'm, I'm very pleased to be here with you and Rita today. Um, my experience with emergency arbitration is a couple of years ago act, acting as arbitrator under the ICC rules in an emergency arbitration, and very recently acting as claimants or applicants counsel under the CTAC arbitration rules. Well, thank you both. Um, th there's actually a huge amount we can discuss about emergency arbitrations. We've picked three topics. Uh, the first relates to the circumstances in which an emergency arbitration can be launched, uh, which we'll refer to as the jurisdictional requirements for emergency arbitration. Then we'll explore the decision-making process of an arbitrator in whether to grant emergency relief in an emergency arbitration. And then finally, we'll actually have a bit of a discussion around the types of relief that uh, an emergency arbitrator is able to grant. So if we start with the first topic then, so not everyone can seek emergency arbitration. And even if it is requested, there's no guarantee that a party will get uh, an emergency arbitration off the ground at all. Uh, Rita, maybe uh, if you can uh, take us through this question first, what's the starting point for a party seeking 
urgent relief before an emergency arbitrator. Thank you, Guy. Uh, the starting point is, of course, the arbitration agreement. I would say the founding father of every arbitration procedure and of an emergency arbitration. The parties seeking urgent relief or being confronted with an application for emergency measures will need to confirm whether the arbitration agreement and the applicable rules allow for this, I would say, supersonic and very demanding procedure. We are all familiar with the expression that uh, the arbitration agreement is a midnight clause, the clause that is inserted in an agreement at the last minute, uh, probably by um, picked up by an M&A lawyer from a previous contract or draft of a contract without consulting a dispute resolution lawyer. However, an arbitration agreement should be carefully considered by the parties for a number of reasons. Some of them are already known, for instance, um, to avoid pathological clauses, the ones that are a source of uh, um, jurisdiction battles, of uh, challenges at the enforcement stage um, of an arbitral award. One less known and I would say less present uh, concern while drafting an arbitration agreement is the emergency arbitration. arbitration. However, this path to an emergency arbitration may be opened, closed, or I would say full of obstacles and uncertainties depending on the arbitration agreement. So being the arbitration agreement, this starting point, uh, the first stone, the parties should carefully consider all the implications of choosing the arbitration route of an arbitration agreement and of choosing a certain set of arbitration rules. So I would say that the parties should ask themselves some very important questions and seek for advice to have uh, the answers, such as, what arbitration institution should we choose? What is the role of this arbitration institution? What is the set of rules? Do those rules contain or not an emergency arbitrator procedure? What are the thresholds requirements to refer to uh, emergency arbitration? Just to give an example, uh, the one that I'm more familiar with, um, the ICC rules foresee that the emergency arbitrator provisions apply only of, to the parties that are signatories of the arbitration agreement, um, but do not apply if the arbitration agreement was concluded before January 1, 2012. If the parties have opt out of the emergency arbitration provisions, and if the parties have and or if the parties have agreed to another pre-arbitral procedure that provides for the granting of conservatory interim or similar measures, this is just an example. Other questions: um, What is the emergency arbitration procedure? What does it imply? Um, do the parties wish to be able to recourse to an emergency arbitrator, or do they? want to exclude such possibility? Do they need to exclude it in advance or do they sh or do, do, should they exclude it in advance? Um, what are the effects of an emergency arbitrated decision? How will local courts or the ones handling uh, with the, uh, handling the enforcement stage consider and treat an emergency arbitrator decision? 
Um, just a and a, just a final question: If the parties wish to adopt a multi-tiered an escalation clause, does it prevent any an emergency arbitration? So the question is: uh, Do the parties need to fulfill all previous stages foreseen in the multi-tiered clause? a negotiation phase, a mediation phase, before resorting to emergency arbitration, or the stipulation of those phases will deprive parties to of this very special uh, relief. The parties, of course, may leave this matter to interpretation, uh, to the arbitrator to decide, uh, but probably it will be more uh, um, it will be better for the parties to foresee that in the arbitration clause. So, in a nutshell, I would say that when uh, dealing with an urgent situation, parties should not be struggling with the validity of uh, the arbitration agreement, with the interpretation of such agreement, and with doubts about the possibility of initiating or not an emergency arbitration. The arbitration agreement is the starting point, and it should be very clear and undisputed for uh, allowing or not allowing uh, the arbitration, uh, the emergency arbitration route. Thanks very much, Rita. And um, having had experience of exactly this point around escalation clauses being raised as a bar to um, emergency arbitration, you're right to raise it. Um, it is actually a point that parties should bear in mind when drafting arbitration agreements. But interestingly, there's certainly a line of thinking in international arbitration that where you may have threshold requirements to substantive arbitration, that may be an admissibility requirement to the arbitration itself, but not necessarily a bar to emergency arbitration. But it is well worth trying to avoid the argument with good drafting in your um, uh, escalation clause in the first place. Thanks very much, Rita. Mario, um, we've heard from Rita about the importance of the arbitration agreement, um, but we know there's a, often a, some form of threshold requirement for an institution before an emergency arbitration can take place. What's your view on that? Can you comment on it? Thank you, Guy. Um, so I'll basically flip the coin in terms of what Rita said and look at rather than what the party should um, have regard to when drafting their clause and what to do with escalation requirements, etc., I'll, I'll briefly dive into what the institutions will look at, obviously from my own experience, which is primarily also with the ICC rules and the CTAC rules. So as Rita said, the starting point is of course the arbitration agreement and the applicable rules, and those will need to be read in conjunction with one another, whether you're the institution administering the arbitration or the parties seeking the relief. So there's a couple of points that parties and clients need to keep in mind here. Now, as Rita mentioned, there are quite a few formal requirements under various rules. Um, under the ICC rules, Rita went through them, so I won't go through them again in detail. But basically, you have a temporal requirement that the arbitration agreement needs to be concluded after 2012, and you also need to have not opted out of the procedure. So many, many of these rules, and this is an important side note, many of these rules have opt-out procedures very rare ones have opt-in, but obviously it's for the, the client and for their lawyers to look at what's going on and which rules you're looking at in order to decide if you want emergency arbitration to apply, what you need to do in terms of opting out or opting in. So just a very quick point on that. There is, in addition, um, at least in theory, 
a threshold issue relating to what I will very loosely term the merits. Although if you examine the rules in detail, um, my personal view is that the, the merit aspect of admissibility in terms of the institution accepting a case is very much subsidiary to the formal requirements being satisfied. And what I'm talking about is Article 29.1 of the ICC rules, which mentions urgent interim or conservatory measures. So arguably, since that is in the main body of the ICC rules, that could be a requirement that you need to consider or that an institution needs to keep in mind when deciding whether or not to accept a case. However, if you look at the detailed provisions in Appendix 5 of the ICC rules, and in particular Article 1.5, it refers to Articles 29, 5 and 6 of the ICC rules in terms of what the arbitration court of the ICC needs to have regard to in deciding whether or not to accept the case. And as Rita pointed out, these are the rules that are the formalistic or the formal requirements for um, submission to emergency arbitration. So, um, of course, the institutions may have further insight on what precisely they look at, but keeping in mind that the emergency arbitrator, once appointed, will also obviously look at the substantive requirements in much more detail. It makes sense um, that, generally speaking, institutions will probably only look at the formal requirements. So obviously, looking very briefly at the ICC rules, you need to ensure congruity, if you like, between the signatories to the, arbitral, the arbitration agreement and the party that is seeking the relief against another party. So the parties need to be the same. You have the other temporal requirement, you have the opt-in requirements that we mentioned, but these are generally the threshold that the institution will look at. And just adding to that, um, I, I feel we should look at the CTAC rules as well. Um, Article 2.1 of Appendix 3 of the CTAC rules states that after a preliminary review on the basis of the application, the arbitration agreement and the relevant evidence submitted by the applicant, the court shall decide whether the emergency procedures apply. So arguably that's actually a bit, a bit wider than the ICC test because they're also looking at the evidence. So um, in terms of takeaways for this particular point, I think it's important for parties to keep in mind that there is um, in whatever terms the, the rules provide some sort of admissibility threshold test that the institutions and the courts of the institutions will look at when deciding whether or not to accept the application for emergency measures. Just on Article 29, uh, you're right, actually. And in fact, I had a look at the ICC's commission report in 2019, where they reported on the emergency arbitrator applications. And of 80 applications that had been made, 78 of them were granted. Um, so that does suggest that they have a relatively low admissibility threshold for uh, emergency arbitrations, presumably leaving it to the emergency arbitrator to then decide that threshold test under Article 29.1. But it is an important point because that's where I think there are differences between the different institutions where other institutions will apply more of a threshold test and they will look at that question of urgency. And that then raises the question as to the extent to which then the emergency arbitrator themselves are prepared to then look at that question afresh or whether they are happy to treat the decision of the institution as determinative on the issue of urgency. Now, that may or may not matter because what is common also, as far as I can tell in most institutions, is there is no right of challenge or appeal to that primary decision of the institution as to whether or not to grant an emergency arbitration. So once you're through at that stage, you're through at that stage and that can't be reviewed. 
Let's move on to the second topic, uh, which is really around the, the conduct of the emergency arbitration and the, the way in which the arbitrator has to go about uh, determining the issues and, and making a decision. Um, how does that work? What are the tests that an arbitrator is likely to apply in his or her decision making? Mario. Thank you, Guy. So what I'll do in answering your question is structure this firstly with some practical points and then with what I'll call the legal points. So um, just firstly, I'll go through general things about the pace and conduct of an emergency arbitration, and then I'll circle back also to the test that you mentioned about whether the EA needs to refresh or, or rehash what the institution has already done and also the test that the EA will then apply. Um, just, just in terms of um, parlance, I'm using the term EA as emergency arbitrator so that everyone understands what I'm talking about. Very quickly on pace and conduct, um, as Rita mentioned at the beginning, this is a supersonic process. And regardless of whether you are arbitrator counsel or the client, um, it's a very stressful, high-paced period. So depending on the rules, you will have 14 or 15 days between commencing the arbitration with the application to the emergency arbitrator rendering his order, his or her order or decision or whatever form the decision will take, and we'll get to that later on. So you need to be prepared. And obviously, I will defer to Rita on the defendant side, the respondent side of this, because this is clearly the, um, the, the most hectic position. But whether as an arbitrator or as applicant's counsel, there are certain things that you need to, to keep in mind. Now, as an arbitrator, just as a bit of anecdotal um, point, um, I had started drafting the order on the day that the proceedings commenced. And what I mean by that is obviously I hadn't made a decision on the case, but all of these things that take times like time in drafting, such as the procedural history and those kind of formal parts of a, an order, um, I got those done and early out of the way so that when the party submission started coming in, I could concentrate on them fully. Um, with, with respect to being applicants' counsel, um, what we did before we submitted the application was we had played through the entire 14 days in our head and we, how we thought it was going to run. Um, depending on what has happened prior to the application being initiated between the parties, you may or may not be able to anticipate what the other side may do. But in our case, once we submitted the application, we immediately started drafting a skeleton of a reply based on what we think reasonably the other side was going to say. And of course, you, you will be familiar with both sides of the case and with the strengths and weaknesses of each side. So that is at least something you can start to do while the time is running and before the procedural hearing takes place so that everyone's not sitting around in any point of that, those 14 days um, wondering what to do. Um, just some practical tips before I then turn to the legal part. Um, all of what I'm saying here leads me to a couple of, of pieces of advice, if you like, or conclusions. Um, it's very important in this procedure that you get experienced arbitration counsel. Now, this is not only an ad for CMS, but also just a, a piece of advice for everyone out there considering this, because it's not a court proceeding. It's not a court injunction. It's a very different procedure to what court proceedings in most jurisdictions look like. And you will need someone who knows what they're doing because you've got no time to sit around and work it out. So that's one piece of advice to people out there from the client side. You need to be clear, um, need to keep your pleadings as short as possible and need to make it easier, easy for the EA to award what you want in, or to order what you'd like in your favour. 
So what we've noticed in, in a couple of proceedings is that the tendency is there to, to run this essentially as a mini arbitration packed into 14 days. Uh, my personal opinion is that doesn't work. It would probably overwhelm the arbitrator and may not lead to you getting the relief that you're, you think you need. So be short, be concise, provide what you think the arbitrator needs. Arbitrators, in my experience, will ask you if they need further pieces of information. And also keep in mind that many institutions have a very strict view on what can go into an order. So if you would like a particular article or document to be considered by the arbitrator in his, his or her reasoning, you need to provide it to them because institutions will not always let in extraneous material if the material has not been provided by the parties to begin with. So there's some practical tips. Just on the legal side, and this comes back initially to Guy's point about what the EA needs to do once the um, application is accepted by the institution. So if you look, for example, at the ICC rules, Article 29.1, um, so when the emergency arbitrator makes his or her decision, um, it's stated in Appendix 5 or Article 6 of Appendix 5 of the ICC rules that they should look at the requirement of, of urgency and as look at the jurisdiction. So if you look at Article 6.2, it refers to those two aspects. So in addition to what the institution has done, um, the arbitrator themselves will need to satisfy themselves of the admissibility of the application and of the jurisdiction to decide the dispute. Now, there's considerable academic debate about what those two aspects entail and how they um, differentiate from each other, which I won't go into now, but these are two points that, as a party, you should include these points in your submission because they will need to be addressed in the, in the decision made. Very quickly on the tests, um, the substantive tests, as I'll call them, and now this is where I would... Um, advise going back to court procedure in your jurisdiction, but only to the extent that the test that you will need to apply in order to satisfy or not the requirement of urgency will be very similar by and large to the tests for interim applications or injunctions in your own jurisdiction in court proceedings. And without um, going into the nuances between different jurisdictions, these are generally you will need to show that the application is urgent so it's a temporary measure that cannot await the constitution of the tribunal in the main proceedings. You will need to show a prima facie case on the merits or a serious question to be tried, depending on what test you're applying. The risk of harm, um, generally harm that is not adequ adequately repairable by an award of damages. Now, um, my opinion is that in practice, this element is sometimes not as important as the others, but you know, I'm including it on the list for the sake of completeness. The balance of convenience and proportionality will be a big factor that the EA will take into account. So by that, I mean um, that you need to show as an applicant that the risk of harm to yourself if the relief is not granted is higher than the risk of harm to the respondent party if it turns out that the relief is wrongly granted. So this goes back to it being a temporary measure. It's only supposed to provide relief for a temporary period of time. It can be overruled and changed by the main arbitral tribunal, but for the time being, you need this because it's urgent and harm will result that is greater to you than to the other party if the measure is not granted. Very quickly, there's an additional requirement about prejudging the merits of the case. Um, my personal opinion is that is in the emergency context, um, less so in the interim measures context, but in the emergency context, 
that is less relevant, I think, in practice and often clear from the relief requested whether or not this is going to be an issue. So include it for the sake of completeness, but the others seem to be more important, particularly in this very, very urgent context of emergency arbitration. Thanks, Mario. Um, I agree with all of that. Um, just on the pre-judging, I'm going to take a couple of your points in, in reverse order of, of how, we, how we get to them. Um, I, I think that's probably one where there is a sliding scale because potentially the more interference the order will have over the respondent and the risk that that may be a more, of a more permanent nature or harder to set aside or change, I suspect that's where our arbitrators will be more focused on whether or not they have to prejudge some aspect of the merits. And I'm speaking from experience here where we were seeking certain types of relief where it was really essential that the emergency arbitrator had to reach something of a landing on certain questions of construction under the agreement. But it was somewhat unavoidable, and I think the emergency arbitrator recognised that. I agree with you about looking at the local court rules around interim relief and injunctions, because that is highly likely to influence some arbitrators. I, I would also add, probably, look at the, um, the, the jurisdictional uh, and legal background of the arbitrator, because they may also be influenced quite a lot by how they have typically approached questions of interim measures and including how experienced they are in the world of international arbitration as to whether they will refer to more international materials around these types of thresholds in, in arbitration rather than in court proceedings. And finally, um, I like the, the Rita's term about it being a supersonic process. I think of an, an emergency arbitration as a sprint, whereas a regular arbitration might be more of a marathon. Um, my sense is that it's the respondent that has the most difficult task in an emergency arbitration because they can potentially get no notice of it. And then within uh, possibly 24 hours, are into a 14-day process, which is going to end with an award or an order. So, Rita, uh, you've been on the receiving end of emergency uh, arbitration applications acting for respondents. So, having heard what Mariel said, having heard my observations, what's your experience observations from the uh, generally, but also from the respondent side? Thank you, Guy. Um, yes, being on the respondent side, it, it was a challenge or it is a challenge. Um, I agree with Meryl when she said that is, uh, this is a, a procedure which is a challenge to every party that is involved, but especially to a defendant uh, and especially that is caught by surprise, which often happens. Um, and sometimes it happens not only uh, the moment wasn't unexpected, but sometimes even the possibility of an emergency arbitration is a surprise for the client that was not aware of the implications uh, of choosing a certain set of rules. And that comes uh, leads me back to what we said uh, in the first part of our conversation. The calendar is by nature very demanding, as you said, Guy. Um, you may have 24 hours to answer, for instance, it also may be demanding because other issues may be at stake, some procedural issues. Uh, I give you an example, the language of the procedure. Um, the arbitration agreement is not clear about that. It is disputed if it is English, Portuguese, French, whatever. Um, 
And my experience is that arbitration, emergency arbitrators tend to be flexible and to accept, for instance, that both parties choose one of the language at stake. But we cannot be certain of that. So this is once again an aspect that should be taking, taken into consideration while, while drafting uh, uh, an arbitration clause. Another aspect that, that, that can be very demanding is time zones that are different between the claimant and the defendants. I had a situation like that. Uh, so uh, in a 24 hours deadline, one hour of difference may make uh, a lot of difference. Um, and uh, not only to uh, point to the lights to CMS, but to have uh, a law firm that is present in different jurisdictions may, be, uh, may represent an advantage in a situation like this. The lawyer has finished uh, preparing the draft of the, of the reply, will take uh, some time to rest, and a lawyer in a different time zone of uh, a law firm with presence in different jurisdiction can uh, continue the work that has been suspended. Another aspect, the calendar can also be disturbed by what I would call a bully party, someone that will be undermining the deadline uh, that a counterparty is preparing. Um, so uh, you are not only uh, preparing the reply and you need to answer to non-requested applications that the other party is uh, uh, continuously bringing to the, the procedure. And that uh, makes me uh, add something to what Mariel said, not just you, you need experienced arbitrators. Um, that can handle um, parties that use uh, bully strategies uh, that are not afraid of uh, due process challenges or threats that can discipline the parties and say, this is not allowed, I will not answer to this, etc., etc. And to finalize, I would say uh, from a, a council's uh, perspective, you need to pull up a team as fast as possible with very clear tasks to perform, both from council's side and also from client's side, with a key contact person or key contact persons, as you will need to call in uh, most and uh, <laughs> appropriate hours to give to obtain a certain information, a certain document that is missing. And you will need to take decisions without conferring uh, with clients. So um, agility in the decision-making process, I would say, is the key word also when we, we are uh, facing, when we are involved in a proceeding like this. Thanks, Rita. Um, I agree with all of that as well. Um, interestingly, you, you refer back to how important it is to have an experienced arbitrator, and I think this goes back to, to Mariel's point about how the arbitrator needs to start working immediately. Um, I think in my experience, uh, the experienced arbitrators who've done a number of emergency arbitrations know how important it is to get a really clear procedural order out to the parties really early on in that process because they're really stamping their mark over the control of that process. But I also agree with you um, in particular about the um, challenge in particular for respondents who may not know 
that there is even an emergency arbitrator mechanism available to a party under their arbitration agreement, because the agreement itself in their contract probably says nothing about it. And it only arises by reference to the institutional rules that the parties have chosen to apply. So you've got a huge learning curve if you're counsel for those respondents to actually educate them as to the process, which is why I think, as you've both said, it's actually quite important to have experienced arbitration counsel on these cases so that you're not having to scramble to try and make sure you understand the process uh, itself and then advise the clients. So let's move on then to the third topic. Um, which is the type of relief sought and also the form of order or award. Um, this is uh, an important topic for the emergency arbitrator, but particularly for the parties, because um, you get an order or award, what are you going to do with it? Is it enforceable? Uh, how does that have a bearing on what then happens at the end of the emergency uh, arbitration? Um, so, I mean, open really for both of you in terms of your own views around this. We know that uh, different institutions have different approaches. Mariel. Thanks, Guy. So, um, this I'll start first of all with what could be awarded, and then we can go on to the, the form that an award will, an order or decision. I keep saying award, that that kind of proves my point. And then um, I'll see what Rita has to say from from her perspectives as well, because as 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 we mentioned before, her perspective as respondents' counsel is perhaps slightly different to mine, which is why this is such a a well-rounded exercise. So, with respect to the scope of relief that you can get and request, it's basically up to the parties requesting it. So there are no limitations on what you can request. Although, given that this is an urgent proceeding there will be certain types of relief that will probably come up, such as provisional measure measures, securing the status quo, um, securing assets from being dissipated, restraining orders, orders compelling something that, that should have been done long ago to be done, um, things that shouldn't be done, those kind of things. Although I, I hesitate to go any further with the list of examples, just simply because it's so dependent on the facts of the case. I should add to that, and I meant to say this before in the context of the tests, the emergency arbitrator has a very wide discretion. Now, Guy also mentioned this in the comments after my, my initial points, but this is something that you also need to keep in mind as a party representative. You're not constrained by what you think the courts in your jurisdiction, for example, would grant. You can ask the emergency arbitrator for pretty much anything. Whether or not you get it will be a different point, and that's with, re with reference to the tests that we talked about and other aspects that we've already gone over. But you can ask for anything. And this is a very important fact because what you ask for is a temporary measure. So if you need something to stay as it is or not stay as it is, um, just for the period bridging between when you ask and when the main tribunal is in a position to form its own views on the issue, then you may as well ask for it. Of course, you need to um, give, your, give reasoning to your requests. And part of that reasoning will be, in addition to explaining that the emergency arbitrator has a very wide discretion, will probably be with reference to the test that we discussed earlier. But generally, parties should feel free to ask for whatever they want, um, depending on what their circumstances require. Now, very quickly, um, just on the test and the way they work in practice, because there, are such, there is such a wide range of relief available, what an emergency arbitrator would generally do, and what I did in my case, although that's not necessarily instructive, is you need to apply those tests for each single piece of relief requested. 
So in my case, there was um, six or seven requests and I went through the same exercise for all of them just because there was no package approach to, to what I was doing. So that's just something to keep in mind, but less relevant for, for party representatives. In terms of the form of relief, um, look at the applicable rules. The ICC rules, for example, are clear in their reference to an order. Other rules like the CTAC rules refer to a decision, but they use the verbs order or award. So depending on what you're after and which side you represent and all of those factors that can become relevant, um, be conscious of what you need in your particular circumstances and be prepared to say a few words about it in your submissions to the emergency arbitrator. Now, with respect to enforceability and points like that, this is a whole extra topic. There is um, debate out there about the enforceability of, of orders and even the enforceability of interim awards which arguably emergency arbitrator orders, if they are packaged as such, could be regarded as. But generally speaking, you need to look at the rules that you're, you have and make sure that your relief and the order or the decision you're requesting is, is um, appropriate for that. Very quickly on the finality of whatever you receive, whatever decision you receive. Now, this is a very important point in practice, which I think Again, as with many of these topics, parties don't necessarily realise when they go into emergency arbitration. There are provisions in most rules that I'm aware of, and there may be caveats to that, that you can apply with reasons to have the emergency order or decision amended or revoked or changed. Now, in the ICC rules, that is Article 6.8 of Appendix 5, and in Article 6.4 of Appendix 3 to the CTAC rules, there's a similar provision. Now, what are the implications of that? There are several, but mainly if you are not happy with the order that the, the emergency arbitrator has given, then you are able to apply with reasons to that emergency arbitrator to have that order amended or revoked or changed. And the important point for the parties there is that the time limits are off the table. Now, this, the reason I'm, I'm so focused on this is this happened in my case. I rendered the order within the 14-day time limit, and two days later, one of the parties invoking Article 6.8 of Appendix 5 of the ICC rules applied to have that order changed. What ensued was an additional four months of emergency arbitrator proceedings and two additional orders, both of which were significantly longer than the order I had initially given in the 14-day period. So keep that in mind. It is open to use or misuse by a party depending on what your strategy and the position in the proceedings are. But it's a very important tool that I think parties should be aware of. That's it from me. Thanks very much, Mariel. Um, Rita, anything to add to that? Uh, Mariel said it all. <laughs> um, I think that a conclusion that once again we can take for what Mariel said is that you need to have experienced lawyers and experienced arbitrators to be able to deal with the wide range of uh, reliefs that you can ask uh, the court. Um, and so once again, uh, you should not uh, go this uh, supersonic route without uh, sufficient support. I would just like to add one uh, practical aspect that I think it is important to, to our clients or to clients in general that is the decision on costs. Um, the emergency arbitration may imply significant costs 
not due to the duration of the procedure because the calendar is very, uh, as we know, is very short, but uh, for um, or related to um, the significant number of uh, resources that are allocated to this procedure. Um, so under ICC rules, uh, the emergency arbitrator will fix uh, the costs of the proceedings um, will determine which part will bear uh, any with uh, in, in which proportion, but there are other solutions you can find in the uh, SIAC rules, arbitration rules, or the Hong Kong arbitration rules um, that the arbitral tribunal may have a final word. This is a sp uh, specifically foreseen that may have a final word on the apportionment of the costs. Uh, to give you a final um, a, a third solution uh, in the LCIA rules, you may find uh, a provision where the emergency arbitrator may decide and fix the costs, but he may also, he or she, may also leave that decision to the Tri arbitral tribunal to allocate part or all the costs to the uh, arbitrators um, that will uh, decide uh, the main proceedings. Um, a final word on the proof of the costs. Um, uh, in common arbitration proceedings, tribunals tend not to request uh, detailed supporting uh, documents. For instance, an invoice with an overall amount may be considered sufficient because you, you tend to consider that an arbitral tribunal has sufficient knowledge of the procedure in order to assess uh, if the fees that are being uh, indicated by each part, each party are reasonable or not. Um, and also, as we know, to give further uh, supporting documents may raise confidential and privileged uh, issues. I would say that in an uh, emergency arbitration context, uh, there is no reason to change this understanding. On the contrary, um, in my opinion, it is uh, more justified uh, not to demand an extra burden of proof uh, uh, to, to, to request that to the parties. Thanks, Rita. And, and on the um, issue of costs, it's an interesting one because, yes, that power exists, for example, in the LCI rules. Um, I think I would think carefully about whether or not to ask for costs in the emergency arbitration because the arbitrator's got such a lot on their plate just dealing with the issues. Do you really want to give them that additional burden of dealing with costs or would you prefer that they allocate their time to the substantive issues? Um, I, I've got um, one final comment and then I've got a bonus question for you both, which you'll have to answer in one sentence. Um, so my final observation goes to this point about enforcement and whether you choose an order or award, because I, I think the other thing that one has to think about, probably important, particularly for claimants counsel, but also for respondents counsel is where might an award or an order be enforced? Because I think that needs to be thought through quite early and quite possibly having lawyers ready in the wings to pursue that type of enforcement action. Because if it's in a different jurisdiction, you may need to get going immediately. If you've sought urgent relief and you get that urgent relief, there is always that risk that the respondent will still not comply with it. So are you ready to go for that? But there's, here's my related bonus question. 
Do you think emergency arbitrations lend themselves or tend towards the parties getting to a settlement more quickly? Uh, you can ha you have to give a yes or no answer, but you can give one sentence in response as well. I'll ask Rita first and then Mario. Uh, I would say that's a difficult question. Uh, it will depend on the case. I don't I, I cannot say yes or no. I would say it very much depend on the case. Mario. I'll go with Rita's wonderful introductory loyally remarks. It depends but I'm going to go slightly further in one direction and say, if done well, yes, it should help parties to settle, which could have a very key advantage at an early stage of the procedure. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I think it is entirely fair to give a balanced view on that final question. So that concludes our, our podcast. Rita, Mariel, thank you so much for your contributions. Really appreciate it. Everyone, thanks for tuning in.